what are you trying to do with warfare, right? Hmm. Are you trying to take territory? Probably really hard to do that with just cyber, okay? Are you trying to create regime change? Probably really hard to do that with just cyber. Um, are you trying to make money? Yeah, actually, you can do that with cyber, right? Hi everyone, before we start, I want to take a minute to talk about my next book. You may have heard about the story of GameStop in January or February and thought it was all over. You're sadly mistaken. Unfolding Online has been a clash between the corrupt practices of Wall Street and the hive mind of the internet. It's a hot, raging information war pitting retail investors against financial giants swimming in corruption and fraud. The trailer is at the end of this podcast, but if you want to help crowdfund the book or just find out more, you can sign up to my mailing list to get access to a preview of chapter one or go to whenmoon.com to read more about the book. The first 200 people to pre-order the book will get a free pack of To The Moon crayons with their book. I just want to make a quick mention of our sponsors. Namecheap are one of the cheapest places on the internet to get a domain name for your next website. I've used Namecheap for all the sites I've ever purchased and I've found it really easy to use. Spreaker are a rapidly growing platform for podcast recording, publishing, and monetization with pricing plans as low as $7 per month. A cheap way to host your podcast and start earning from your back catalog of shows. Finally, ExpressVPN is the internet's most trusted VPN. Protect your privacy and watch and view content that is location locked you could even try watching Netflix from a different country. And right now, they're offering 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Please use the links in the description below if you want to support the show. Anyway, here's the podcast. That even though I'm from the Naval Academy and I'm a civil servant, that my, that my views are my own. Okay, I represent at all the U.S. government, Department of Navy, the Naval Academy, etc., so hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am uh, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Martin uh, Lebicki. Have I pronounced that correctly? Actually, uh, it's Lebicki in the United States. It's Lebicki. Lebicki. Ah, okay. It's a Polish name. That's cool. Uh, but yes, so you are the Keister Chair of Cybersecurity Studies at the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, author of the textbook on cyber war, cyberspace, and peace and war, which uh, will have a edition coming out did you say this year or yep. sorry that was conquest in cyberspace national security and information warfare and information technology standards quest for the common fight you seem to be a very well-read man in the area of information warfare and hence why i've decided to have you on the show today well thank you well thank you no problem so uh for people who are maybe not familiar with the concept uh why don't you give us just like a brief um explanation of uh what information warfare is from from your understanding okay information warfare is a manipulation of information or information systems to achieve certain political or political military ends there has been information warfare because one element of information warfare is psychological operations ever since jericho and the bible okay in which basically uh, the troops marched around Jericho seven times. This is sort of a way of discouraging the defenders of Jericho itself. Okay, but as we add technology, and particularly as we add information technology, we add new venues for information warfare. Okay, um, mm -hmm. as soon as you have telegraph lines, you have methods of warfare that assume that entail tearing up telegraph lines. When you start having radio frequency or radar, Coming to the picture, you have methods of information warfare, subset electronic warfare, that go after this. And in the last 30 years or so, as the Internet has become more important and as more people have used it, the manipulation of the Internet, the manipulation of information systems, has joined with the, in, the manipulation of information. They become part of a broader category of information warfare. Okay. But in practice, there are two things that people worry about. They worry about things such as the manipulation of social media, in which all the systems work correctly. They do what they're supposed to do, but bad information gets into the system. 
And the other one is a manipulation of information systems, uh, which is computer hacking and things of that nature. Okay. Um, in many ways, they're two different subjects. They're handled in this country by two different organizations within the Department of Defense, uh, but not everybody separates them out so uh, so well. For instance, in Russia, uh, there are various intelligence outfits, be they the FSB, the SVR, or the um, GRU, tend to combine these as part of a broader information campaign. In the United States, that's not the direction we've chosen to go. Is there, do you think there's a particular advantage to separating them out or uh, putting them together? Just because uh, I've been reading um, a fantastic book by the author Peter Pomerantsev, uh, who wrote the book, uh, This Is Not Propaganda. And he talks a lot about the, the different techniques used um, in sort of attempts to manipulate social media and, and information warfare. And he kind of points to the, the fact that the Russians are, at least in his mind, uh, one of the, the best in the world at this. Is, do you think that that is because of the fact they attack this as like one entity rather than coming at it from many different angles with many different departments? That's that's a tough question. So let me give you both let me give you both pro and con just to show how even-handed they are. Okay, if you take a look at the 2016 election, in which Russian hackers carried out cyber operations, carried out hacking against a Democratic National Committee, picked up the information, put it on the internet as part of a broader information operations campaign. There you can see some overlap between the hackers on the one hand and the psychological operators on the other hand, okay? Uh, the argument against basically suggests there are two very, very different skill sets. If you want to be a good hacker, you have to understand how computers think. But if you want to be good at information operations, you have to understand how humans think. And they really think in two very different ways. So on the one hand, there's an argument to be made for integrated operations, Right, which takes a look at all the instrumentalities of conflict. And on the other hand, there's an argument to be made that there are really such different skill sets that it's very difficult to manage both skill sets coherently. Right, The technical person, uh, the person who's good at ma managing technical folks, really don't have a handle on the techniques of manipulation. And the people who have techniques of manipulation for the most part, uh, computers are obscure to them. Okay, you, you mentioned something interesting there, actually, um, that uh, because you said that the the Russians were yeah responsible for the hack of the DNC. Is that your view as someone who like studies this? Just because I know there's been been claims counter to that, and Julian Assange just said that it wasn't um, wasn't Russians that that were his source on on that. Uh -huh. um, but you, I assume, have looked at this deeper than I have. Well, I, I haven't played with the servers, okay? I have a high degree of confidence it was the Russians. I have a high degree of confidence because of the forensic work that was taking place on the DNC. In other words, mm. what happened was when the DNC complained and they went to the FBI, and the FBI went to a company called CrowdStrike, and they said, we have imaged the, the systems that you're talking about. In other words, this is a perfect duplication of what was running on the systems at the time that we got it, okay? And then you take a look at what's on the systems and you say, hold it, this doesn't belong here, this doesn't belong here, that doesn't belong here. Let's take a look at what we found and figure out who it's correlated to. So the, if you were to ask 15 years ago, computer forensics was in its infancy. And the notion was that we really couldn't figure out who was doing anything on the Internet because in the old cliche on the Internet, nobody knows you're not a dog or nobody knows you are a dog, one of those two. But <laughs> in the last 10, 15 years, we have gotten not only an improvement in our technology, but an improved understanding of what kind of breadcrumbs the other side drops. And that allows us to say with a high degree of confidence uh, that it was a quote-unquote, threat actor from Russia, from China, from Iran, from North Korea, for, for whatever, okay? Um, and the people who do this are very clever technically. 
Furthermore, we get convictions in courts of law, which is, many, you know, I can understand the argument that you can accuse somebody, but if you never get them before a court of law, you don't have a neutral arbiter to determine whether this individual who's been accused has been unjustly accused or correctly accused. But when you do get to courts of law and the other side has lawyers and you go through this entire trial mechanism, you have a much higher degree of certainty that, yeah, you got the right person. Is it 100%? Nothing in this world is 100%, but it's pretty high. It's pretty high. Yeah, now this this brings up an interesting thing actually. Uh that you, you talked you talked about like trying to follow the breadcrumbs to see where things are coming from. And that fifteen years ago or so it was very um mm-hmm. yeah, it was very difficult to tell sometimes where, where cyber attacks or, or people were, were coming from on the internet. But uh, then obviously as technology has advanced and progressed, uh, mm-hmm. the capability to tell where things are coming for has has uh, evolved. But I'm curious as to whether people's defenses in or or their ability to make it look like where something is coming from has evolved uh, alongside that so is is the is the capability to tell where something is coming from accelerating at the same rate that that someone can sort of obscure the source of of wherever um yeah pieces of uh, hacks or or cyber attacks or or wherever is coming from well okay let, let, let me step back from because there's 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 an assumption built into that, right? That we take the hack okay. and then we work backwards to find out literally where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. But that's generally only a small part of what's going on. Okay, for instance, now I'll give you an example from the Sony hack. In two, 2014, the North Koreans hacked Sony, mm-hmm. right? How do we know it was the North Koreans other than they had a huge motivation for doing so? Well, we traced the hack back to a server in Thailand, right? And then after that, the tracing of the the messages, the packets, where the packets went, sort of stopped there. But we also knew, knew another fact, and that fact was that the North Koreans had used the same Thai servers to carry out hacks on the South Koreans, So even though we couldn't trace back um, from Thailand back to North Korea, we could say, look, there were a lot of people who looked and smelled a lot like North Koreans that operated from this server. That's another piece of evidence. Okay, and then there's also something in crime called the modus operandi, right? The techniques that people use um, are repeated. And by figuring out, hey, I've seen this technique before, and this was used by the Russians, or this was used by the Chinese, then we have a high degree of confidence. Plus, I should add, there's other intelligence that nobody talks about, but it's there because this is the intelligence business. So I let it up to your imagination what that might be. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that that I sort of touched on there earlier was that the, Russia, the Russians are at least in in the minds of many uh, the sort of they're the the top level of people who are who are carrying out this sort of information warfare and cyber attacks is that the reality are they the the most egregious offenders or are, are china or north korea or i don't know venezuela or or anyone is there is there someone that we are not considering that is okay. on the same level okay let's let's make a distinction here okay there's a difference between egregious offenders which assumes a sort of a code of conduct that these people violate. And then there's something called talent. (laughs) Let's start off with talent. The Russians are extremely talented. I used to say they're extremely talented because after the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union, they had a lot of underemployed mathematicians on their hands. But the fact (laughs) is the Soviet Union collapsed 30 years ago, right? But generally, the Russians seem to be punch above their weight in areas of mathematics. And computer hacking and mathematics have a lot of overlap. Furthermore, um, it's a paying proposition in Russia because there's a lot of overlap and a lot of communications between the intelligence bureaus of Russia and the criminal bureaus of Russia. So they have a strong ecology, and as a result is that Russian techniques are very, are very sophisticated. Okay, who else is sophisticated? Well, a lot of people who are sophisticated are people that we don't worry about, Right. 
the American citizens are not, I, let me step back on this. From the Washington perspective, American citizens are not worried about the NSA, okay? Uh, and that's because, well, they're on our side and they operate overseas. Um, in theory, you have countries like the UK, which is very sophisticated, countries such as Israel, which is, are very sophisticated, and which in theory do not operate against the United States and vice versa. In practice, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not worried about the UK, let's just put it that way. <laughs> okay, but there's a paradox in cyber. The best spies are the ones you don't see, right? And the overwhelming amounts of cyber operations are carried out by people um, who don't leave a trace. On the other hand, people who are incapable of doing it all don't leave a trace, right? So I haven't seen any Peruvians in my system. Does that mean the Peruvians are so good or does that mean they're either uninterested or not capable of, of operating at that level. Now, this may sound theoretical, but what you find is that if you look at a period until about November of 2013 with the Maidan, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the demonstrations in Kiev, and you talk to the professionals in this country, they would say the Russians are really good and we never see them, and that's how good they are. And then after November 2013, you saw them all the time. Right? So did they suddenly become worse? That's implausible. Or is it that they were making different trade-offs and they wanted to be seen? Okay, so there's yeah. that to consider. Yeah, you, 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 can't, you can't spread fear of your yourself as a, as a threat mm -hmm. if you're not visible, you know? Yeah, I get, I get that. That's that's interesting. I had not considered it from that point of view, actually. Um, that's really interesting. So uh, you, you've written about the uh, the idea of of cyber sovereignty, and and um, right. it's I, I I believe you're in the the middle of researching why you believe that it's not a good idea for the United States to pursue this. Uh, do you want to do you want to explain what cyber sovereignty is, and then why you you don't believe it's a good idea as a, as a goal to pursue? Okay, let's see, where am I? I actually drafted a paper, but I haven't really circulated it. The problem in cyber is if you don't circulate it, sooner or later it's either obsolete or you have to do a lot of rewriting. But that's not my, that's yeah. my problem, not yours. Okay, what is cyber sovereignty? <laughs> cyber sovereignty is the belief that countries have the right to govern the information that comes into their country. Okay, now, in practice, countries can exercise cyber sovereignty and they don't need anybody's permission to do so. Okay, and generally speaking, um, that's through the United States, that's through the UK, that's going to be true of China and Russia and all that sort of stuff. The problem is that cyber sovereignty is often extended to the argument that governments have a right to censor the information that comes from other countries. That adds part of sovereignty. and that sort of argument is incompatible with the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, okay? And it's incompatible with, I mean, the First Amendment is not simply uh, a legal statute, so to speak, but it, in fact, it forms part of the American political culture. It is the notion that good information will ultimately drive out bad information, that the government is in no is neither uh, technically does not have a monopoly on the truth, right? And if it tries to exercise it, it'll have a monopoly on things it wants to hear, which is a very different notion. Okay, China and Russia have no such problems with this. In fact, China has, as everybody knows, erected a great firewall to keep information out. Um, Russia hasn't quite done that, but they have a lot of other techniques they use to suppress information, right? One of our complaints about China and Russia is that the authoritarian model of governance, which is antithetical to Western democratic values, is supported by the kind of censorship that cyber sovereignty says is a good thing. Right? So in the end of the, the, the day, the West can basically govern its own cyberspace, almost through technical means, um, but with a relatively light hand without 
dragging in the ideology of cyber sovereignty. Um, and for us to make an argument about that is to add credibility to the arguments made by countries such as Russia and China, with whom we do not agree uh, ideologically. So it's sort of a no-gainer. It, it's a no-gainer. We don't get anything and, and we lose a certain amount. Okay. Now, in the end of the day, can the United States force China to open itself up to information that China doesn't want it to? And the answer is not really. Okay. I mean, there are a couple of technical methods you can use. They're considered hostile. Um, and generally speaking, we don't use them. Okay. Now, having said as much, you may remember such institutions as Radio Liberty, Radio for Europe, Radio Marti. So, yeah, we do that and other countries jam us and are used to jam us. I think Cuba still jams us. Not certain about that, but I think so. Um, so there is that. Um, but by and large, it is not in our interest to make a big deal about cyber sovereignty. Okay. Now, uh, there's two kind of things I want to address there. First of all, um, this notion that that you you pointed out is like inherently part of the First Amendment is that good information will drive out bad information um, or will, will rise to the top. And and this is a, an argument that was made actually by Twitter themselves in, in when people were asking them five or six years ago about misinformation. And it's it's something that, that has not yet, we haven't we haven't defined um maybe we shouldn't but we haven't defined whether rights like that are applicable on the internet is it is it your belief that that we should apply this those same standards on the internet that we should like allow good information to rise to the top because for example one of the tactics that I've been looking at that people would use mm -hmm. if they're attempting to drown out um the information that they don't want heard on online on on specific forums or across like social media broadly is um this idea of topic dilution and it's where you will flood a forum or or some topic uh, or some sub sub forum with lots of just irrelevant poor information to drown out the good stuff and that the the it's it's very difficult to kind of police that but at the same time, there's people trying to. What is your sense on that? Okay, here I'm going to actually take off take off the technical hat and, and start speaking almost almost in legal terms. And I am not a lawyer, so you, you can start the clock on amateur hour here. Okay, <laughs> um, there is a debate in the United States about at least two types of information. One of is incitement to violence, and that was involved after the January sixth. Brian insurrection, it, yeah. zombie <laughs> apocalypse, or whatever. Okay, and the other one was misinformation about public health. Mm. Um, and I'm on two sides of that issue, which doesn't make me the best spokesman for either. Okay, on the one hand, mm. if you drive information underground, it will be, it will be harder to counter. Um, on, but people are dying who would not necessarily be dying if they didn't have that kind of information. Okay, so there's that. Now, you had mentioned another technique entirely, and that gets to a, an issue about identification and authentication. Okay? If you have an open forum, sooner or later, if you do not have content moderation, it will be dominated by the most impolite element. The sort of aggression's law of conversation that bad information drives out good information. So what do you do about that? Well, one thing you can do is have content moderation. Okay. Um, the other thing you can do, and they're not the sort of related, is what we um, is to insist that people use their true identification. Now, and their true identity. Now, Facebook has that policy. But Facebook has no way of enforcing that policy. Okay, if I assert that I am Charlie Brown, a famous comic, right? How are you going to know differently? Forget the fact that you can see my face, face recognition, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but in fact, but that, that's actually part of the answer. There are methods of authenticating individuals. And so 
the place where I come down on is if it's cost effective, and that's an important caveat, social media should have the right to insist on hard authentication for individuals, but should also accept people who are not authenticated. Now, what does that mean? That means if I say I'm Charlie Brown, okay, and I purport to be Charlie Brown, and I'm not, they have a right to basically call me out and keep me off, keep, keep me, keep me from using the name Charlie Brown. But on the other hand, if I just want to go on, I'm Mr. Anonymous, and Charlie Brown is my handle, that's okay. And you, the listener, have to make up your mind whether you will trust the statements from an unauthenticated party. So if I say I'm Martin Lubicki, and I can prove I'm Martin Lubicki, and that hasn't <laughs> that means something to somebody, I guess, right? Um, I have a better way of judging my credibility. Judge, you have a better way of judging my credibility because I, in a sense, I stand behind my words. Hmm. So you can have anonymous speech. And you can have non-anonymous speech. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a, Twitter definitely has a form of that with their verified um, profiles and their non-verified ones. Um, right, but that the, often the, gets confused, the, by the, the way. Ticks. Because yeah. some people think that a verified profile means that the statements are verified. When mm. actually it's just the identity of the speaker that's verified. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've I've noticed actually something that's really interesting is I have a, a like a, a keywords insight plugin mm -hmm. that um, that comes up and and when for example when I'm searching mm -hmm. or watching a video on YouTube, it will give me like their estimation of the experts like percentage authority on whatever topic that mm -hmm. is being discussed, um, which is fascinating because I, I like if they don't tell you how they calculate it. Um, but it's really interesting that that there that someone is trying to calculate that because obviously that that's playing into to the algorithm and um on how far things are being pushed up searches. Um, so I I get the feeling that we're attempting to do that subtly, or at least some social media platforms are, which is which is interesting. But uh, the second thing that I, I wanted to go back to um, that that you'd mentioned um, in your answer there earlier was the idea that. Um, different countries have the have the or might have the ability to be the the judge of what information should be allowed to sort of flow into their their country. Now, obviously, that's become more and more difficult with the internet. But something that is is I I'm not sure how to feel about it, and I'm not particularly happy about it. I mean, maybe maybe you can argue differently. Is that when when we look at say um, Twitter or or YouTube or Facebook. Um, they are deciding what is acceptable, not just for, for users within the United States to see. They're technically being censors for the world. And that, I, I feel like that puts, puts, puts America, and not even just America, actually, just it puts like a handful of people in Silicon Valley in a very powerful position in terms of like the information that gets viewed by the entire world. Um, yeah, what's your sense on whether that's actually a good thing or not? I understand the perspective that suggests that a bunch of folks in Silicon Valley should not be dictating to this country, much less any other country, what is true and what is not true. Okay, now my observation is that by and large, they have exercised that power reluctantly, that their problem from a political point of view is that you have the when it comes to, say, January 6th, you have the right that says you are censoring too much and the left who says you are not censoring enough. Or take out January 6th and put in COVID information, you get something similar. Um, what about foreign countries? Okay, the, he, here's where there may be some pushback. One is there are foreign languages, right? And it's... And what can be said in French may be judged by different people than what can be said in the United States. And in fact, ought to be, because there are a lot of subtleties in language that will not necessarily be caught by somebody for whom this is a second language, or for somebody for whom is using automatic translation. And the second thing is, 
um, and this is sort of the econ 101 in me talking. Ultimately, if there's too much of that stuff going on, people will form alternatives. Okay, parlor or parlay, I don't know how it's pronounced. Parlor. Um, is a an alternative for those people who think that Facebook, Twitter, et al. are tossing out too much information that they they deem valuable. But having said that, I don't think Parler is doing that well, is it? No, uh, Gab is doing better, actually, as far as I can tell. Um, but even then, there's there's the... Now, this, this goes to something, actually, that, that I thought of there earlier, and I wanted to ask you about in that. So if we're talking about in the context of... Um, psychological operations, information warfare, and uh, and everything that we've kind of gone over. It, it, one of the things that I find, uh, I'm not, again, not sure as to which is better, theoretically, is that as we see that these social media platforms, like some of them decide to censor, new ones pop up, people sort of move from one to the other, and the places that had, had declared themselves the, the, the town square of the internet slowly lose some of that that central power. I'm curious as to whether you think that the centralization makes the makes even just like America by itself more vulnerable to information warfare online with people spreading, I don't know, misinformation, rumors, whatever you want to say, or whether the idea that it might become more decentralized as as people fracture to different platforms and and things would that make it more difficult to combat or, or make you more vulnerable because it's almost more difficult to get a sense of what's going on when everything is across numerous different sites. I think you have a good point there. Okay. A lot depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to find conspiracies, for instance, you're better off in a common platform. If you're trying to move masses of people or keep masses of people from being moved, um, it's also facilitated more with a common platform. Actually, no, um, the reverse would be true. Then to have these people sort of talk in separate spaces, as long as you're talking about large numbers, may in fact get in your way. But there's also the sort of the built-in inherent towards monopolization, okay? Um, it was a Stanford professor, Brian Arthur, wrote, I, don't know, I think about 30 years ago at this point, Right, the ability of networks to perpetuate themselves. Because you invested so much in a network that it's difficult for you to move. You know, uh, 15 years ago or thereabouts, there might have been a contest between Facebook and MySpace. But that contest is over with a couple of niche exceptions. Uh, and Facebook is going to be very hard to dethrone. And so what people have to do to compete with Facebook is either find their own monopolistic platform and build on that or offer a Facebook offer a service that Facebook is relatively poor on. So you can have Facebook and you can have Twitter, even though they're both social media because they have a different orientation. Or you can get people like Amazon or Google to get in this business, but they would have to build it off their core strengths, right? For Google, that's search and YouTube. And for Amazon, it's um, electronic commerce. And I'm not entirely certain, by the way, that, say, for Amazon's perspective, that would be a good deal. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting point that you raise, actually, that the different strengths make, uh, make it difficult for these different companies to kind of compete with each other, and instead they've monopolized one small area of the whole concept of of social media mm -hmm. as such um that's yeah that's that's fascinating it's and and the the about the the network um the network sort of the the sunk cost fallacy or at least uh, the idea that people have put time effort resources into using a particular net network is is a is a is a problem that's or well a, mm -hmm. an idea that's playing out right now as people as a lot of creators are on youtube are not happy with the level of censorship and demonetization of their content, but yet don't move rapidly to other alternatives like odyssey.com, for example, because they have, because YouTube have the audience and they've spent time building their 
their brand on that platform and therefore are reluctant to abandon it. And like, for example, Steven Crowder, I know, is 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 currently suing uh, YouTube and Facebook because he has spent well, he claims like millions of dollars mm-hmm. on advertising and using those platforms only for them to then kick him off because they don't like what he said, or at least in his mind. Um, And it's, it's, it's a difficult, difficult thing to try and parse out like where and when the, the market as such will, will create alternatives that Mm -hmm. are actually viable. Right. And there's Mm -hmm. this whole question about, you know, at what point do you start heading over to the regulation model? It is understood, and again, I'm not a lawyer here, but at some point, private entities assume public color because they have replaced what we used to do in public, right? And if we've gotten to the, and have we gotten to the point where, in fact, Facebook should start to be treated as a public entity? And a number of folks are making that claim, mostly on the right-hand side of the spectrum, which is amazing because that's totally uh, antithetical to everything that the right are meant to represent. That that's the you know that they would say the government shouldn't be involved in a private company, yeah. and yet the private company has, well, I don't know, ticked off the right wingers so much that they're now asking the state, which they normally dislike, to right. step in and protect them. <laughs> well, it's the old story of where you stand depends on where you sit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, so the, the other concept that I kind of was very keen to get your your take on, and we, we, we have again, we've touched on this sort of vaguely, is that uh, the idea that we may be in some kind of cold information war with um, either Russia or China. Uh, yeah. Is that is that sort of, what do you make of those those claims? Well, you actually have one question here. Will information warfare be the dominant kind in the future? To which I res- scratched my response. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> that means we can get rid of the other kind of wars. Um, mm. Okay, let me start off. The concept of a Cold War is a political concept. It's not a concept that comes out of technology. Technology includes some of the ways in which we wage a Cold War. Okay, but the question that one has to ask every time sort of one takes a metaphor from another field, are you revealing more than you obscure? Okay, and so you actually have to remember back to the Cold War, which I can, because <laughs> I'm old enough. Um, I amaze my, my students when I tell them action, I can actually remember the Cuban Missile Crisis before we knew how it ended. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, I was going to say. Before we knew how it ended. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, in the Cold War, we treated the Soviet Union as pretty close to a zero-one adversary, that anything that was to their benefit was to our loss, with the sole exception that nuclear war would have been both to our losses. Okay? So we worked, we in the West worked really hard to make sure that the Soviet empire, that the Soviet's economy would not grow very robustly. Okay, we did not trade very much with them. We did not exchange very much information, although we know that in certain fields such as mathematics, science, etc., you can't help that. Um, but we probably, if we could have, we would have kept some information away from them on that level as well. Okay? Our attitude towards the Soviet Union was this town, th- this planet isn't really big enough for the both of us. Sooner or later, one of us is going to prevail and one of us does isn't. Okay, now, um, are we in a Cold War? Okay, and I'm, I'm going to have to go politic- uh, basically talk about international politics here, which is not why I'm here. But anyway, let me just continue. There are two countries, the United States and the West in general, worry about. There's Russia and there's China. Russia can be very annoying, but Russia is not the adversary it was during the Cold War because it simply doesn't have the economic weight it used to. And because it doesn't have the economic weight, it is capable of doing some very annoying things. And if you're Ukraine, more than annoying things. But to the West, it's not really that kind of challenge because they lack the resources. Okay? The Russians 
sometimes seem to have adopted a I'm as bad as I want to be approach to the world, okay? Uh, to the extent that that is so, and I'm not arguing that that's so, but to the extent that it's so, it's because the leadership in Russia perceives a political gain by being successful, successfully hostile to Western interests. But it's sort of more, it's more shadow dancing than anything else, okay? When you turn to China, it's a very different issue. China does have the resources to present a challenge to the West. But until Xi Jinping, one could have the belief that China was simply going to, through expansion of its economy and resource and technological base, take its rightful place among the other countries. So our our challenge from China was more national than anything else. You know, think of World War One, the world of Europe before World War One, where ideology did not really play a, a, a role there, right? Because all the combatants in World War, almost all the combatants in World War One were pretend constitutional republics. Some of them, such as France, which had no monarchy, were the real deal. Then you had Britain, which had a monarchy, which didn't have very much power, all the way to Austria-Hungary and Russia, which were monarchies and had a great deal more power, okay? But it wasn't as if you had Tsarist Russia turning to Germany and say, my kind of, you know, autocracy is better than yours. There were national interests involved, and countries pursued these national interests. And you could, before Xi Jinping, put the challenge from China in a very similar context. China's a nation looking for its place in the sun, to use Willamite, um, Willamine sort of language here. And we understood that, and it was just a question of negotiating what your place in the sun is. Of late, they seem to be posing more of an ideological challenge. And the, the, the new administration often speaks in those terms. Okay, now I cannot say, I'm not a China expert, whether they're doing it offensively or defensively. In other words, whether they're actually trying to sell people on authoritarianism or whether they're just pushing back on our criticisms of their authoritarianism. Okay? Uh, as far as I can tell, and that's a big caveat, China is not investing in its military at the rate which would suggest that the primary challenge from China will be military. Although their military is growing, and their military is growing because everything is growing in China, and they're taking, they're taking their, their particular share. Okay, um, China's developing economically, and there is a lot of argument to be made that a lot of China's ability to boost itself economically came from cyber espionage. But I think that's less true these days, perhaps because they're at the stage where if they're going to improve their technology, they've got to do it themselves. Okay. All I'm saying they've stolen everything there is to steal. <laughs> no, it's the problem is as you get towards the the top. Okay, let, let me just make a, a small diversion here. Technology transfer is hard. It's hard when I want to transfer you the technology when I'm working at your elbow to try to get you to learn it. Okay, we tend to ignore that fact. We say, "Oh my god, China's rifled through this company's um, files, and therefore they can reproduce what the company has. It turns out that's extremely challenging. And it turns out that the efficacy of their human spies is considerably better than the efficacy of their cyber spies, the, pro the difference being that the cyber spies bring home much more information than the human spies do, and the human spies are put in at risk, okay? So, getting back to the main point, we have a state of competition with China, which cannot be called Cold War. One, because we are economic, we, the United States, to a large extent, the West are economically dependent on China. And because so far the challenge has not been primarily military. Whereas it was a military challenge from the Soviet Union almost literally the day World War II ended. So to look at China and say, well, there's a Cold War template, uh, I think is misleading, almost dangerously so. Okay. Um, we will be rivals with China. We will be rivals for a long time to come. 
But there are many ways of being rivals. And the zero-sum attitude that we had towards the Soviet Union would be would not work for China. I think it would be counterproductive, and it's certainly by no means inevitable. Okay, now having said that, that poli-sci 101 sort of stuff, then I would have to say, okay, if you look at the challenge in cyberspace, they're very different challenges. Most of what we have seen from China has been in the way of cyber espionage, right? And the political salience of China's theft of intellectual property which was very high until the Obama, uh, the Xi-Obama agreements in 2015, has come down considerably. This is not to say that it doesn't still happen, but it doesn't seem to be happening at a level that puts it high on the agenda. Okay, read from that what you will. Okay. Um, it also appears to me that China does not have an active program to use cyber means to destabilize the United States. Now, that's an important caveat because there may be a lot of stuff that I'm just not seeing that hasn't come into the newspapers. There was an article a few days ago by David Sanger and Nicole Pearlroth um, to the effect that the intelligence community uh, concluded that China was trying to get into the U.S. pipeline infrastructure. Okay, but if you take a look at the dates when they were trying to do so, that was like 2011 to 2013. Okay. Which is light years ago in today's standards. They were eight light years um, ago, very light years. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what happened? Did the Chinese simply become more subtle? Did they get everything they wanted? Or did they looked at it and said, that's not the game we want to play? Okay, now when it comes to getting information, uh, the Chinese are very assiduous. But then so is the West. Right? Mm -hmm. Are we looking for different information? One would imagine so, right? Um, the West tends to be more open. The Chinese tend to be less open, although more open than they were during the Cold War. So you're looking for different things. Mm. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, we've seen, uh -huh. yeah. Sorry, did you have more to say? No, okay. Um, now, we've seen the last, even just over the last year or so, um, there's been a fair amount of hacks or cyber attacks on like different bits of um, infrastructure. Uh, there was the, the gas pipeline in, in America. There was, uh, there's been a couple of other apparently foiled ones that I read about. Um, then just a few days ago, we've seen the emergence of the, the Pegasus project. Um, work from from Israel, uh -huh. and it, it, which which is is essentially what I'm saying is in the last year or so we've seen a lot more examples of um, the sort of cyber espionage and and cyber warfare that that mm. that you tend to specialize in. Is this like a like a signifier that that is where war is is or conflict is going, um, and is is yeah is is that uh is that a concerning thing or is that suggesting that mm. we've all just decided that mm. america or, or any nations in the world are mil militarily in like well enough defended that that is not the avenue by which they they seek to uh destabilize or or attack their rivals or or geopolitical enemies okay that that was a lot of questions, so let me let, let me unpack some yeah. of this stuff. <laughs> Sorry, that's a lot. Versus NSO stuff is merely being recently reported, right? This, this story goes back five, ten years. Um, and that's really an issue, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, somebody's trying to make money, and the government, which has the authority over export controls, doesn't seem to be managing it as assiduously as I, as one would like. Okay, um, so that's one thing. The second thing is ransomware is getting more worrisome. Uh, why? Partially it's because with Bitcoin, the things you could do, I could do to you by making your systems misbehave are much more lucrative and easier to transfer. Mm. And the second phenomena, I believe, um, is that the ransomware people 
underestimated how much money they could get from ransomware. They didn't ask for very much. And now they're thinking, you know, we've been under underpricing our services. <laughs> okay. The fact that Colonial Pipeline, which transports um, petroleum products, got hit, does not to me say that it's an infrastructure attack. Because it wasn't the ransomware that closed the pipelines. It was the corporation that closed the pipelines. Okay, it was their choice. Now, whether that was a wise choice, that can be debated. But it, it was not as if the ransomware people had closed the pipelines. Okay, or that they really cared that there were pipelines. All they cared is that somebody would come up with a large ransom. Okay, so the mm -hmm. ransomware so problem is growing. Um, so those are some of the sort of the technical issues. Another technical issue is in the last five years, a lot of hackers have found that what are called supply chain attacks, where I don't go after you, I go after the software you use, I corrupt the software, you buy the software, and all of a sudden that software that you trusted isn't really working for your interests anymore. Okay. That seems to be growing in popularity, and that in and of itself is a separate problem that needs to be worked. Okay, all of that technical stuff aside, now the question is, is cyber a viable method of warfare? And you have to get back to the, to the problem, what are you trying to do with warfare, right? Mm. Are you trying to take territory? Probably really hard to do that with just cyber, okay? Are you trying to create regime change? Probably really hard to do that with just cyber. Um, are you trying to make money? Yeah, actually, you can do that with cyber, right? But um, if you look at how much, if you compare how much money the Russians have made from ransomware uh, versus how much they've lost because of Western sanctions on the Russian economy, it's not even a close contest. Right? It's, it's millions versus billions. Um, can we cause the election of people we don't like with cyber warfare? Right? My, in my humble estimation, I think the Russians got an inside straight in 2016 because of a confluence of unusual factors that, generally speaking, it's not been easily replicable. By the way, a lot of what happens in cyberspace is people say, I wonder if this would do me any good. I wonder if that would do me any good. And then they try it. And while they try it, we're going running around saying, oh, my God, the world is falling. And then at some point they say, you know, that really didn't do for us what we wanted it to do. Let's go on to something else. Um, and I think a lot of what happens in cyberspace is people say, yeah, this wasn't such a useful technique. Or it was useful, but not useful enough to merit the kind of attention we put into it or the kind of resources. So we, 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 we move along. Um, I mean, my sense of, oh, sorry. But, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the smart-ass crack that I made a, a few minutes ago. If that's how you want to wage warfare, given the alternatives, go right ahead. Right? <laughs> We'd rather you guys be uh, annoying than lethal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ultimately, it's it's costing less lives, um, in just yeah, in sheer numbers. <laughs> um, the the thing that my uh, my understanding of both the Russian attempts to influence the the 2016 election and the sort of less mm -hmm. prevalent uh, attempts to influence the Brexit vote um, are both things I wrote about in in my first book. My understanding was that. The reason that they were effective to the extent they were, now you can mm -hmm. debate how effective they were, was because they were able to use social media to play on um, existing kind of social divides mm -hmm. and societal problems that were already there. Mm -hmm. And had they not been those like significant divides, they wouldn't have been like you need something to multiply. Like you can't you can't multiply zero by by something you know you need there has to be something right. there to play on. Um, That's exactly and, right. And exactly. Now my understanding of of their tactics were essentially that they thought they could destabilize the 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 population or the the country's like political mm -hmm. debate to the extent to which it would bring down the country 
Um, now, if you if you look at some people, the way they talk about Russia is that they're playing the like 60 year long game to very slowly destabilize America and overtake them. Um, is that do, do you see that as being like a realistic assessment of what's what's happening? They're just sort of slowly trying to undermine the 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 political debate or the the conversation in America to the point where mm-hmm. it's or in in any country where it's undermines the people's belief in democracy and ultimately brings down the country is that is that just people like dreaming about how committed someone could be to that idea i don't see the russians playing a long game um the bureaucracies might be because the bureaucracies particularly their intelligence bureaucracies have an unusually long lifespan and memory right i do not think the russia's leadership plays a long game i think they're pretty clever in um not innovators, what am I trying to say? Improvisers, improvisers. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I've also heard of China, right? The cliche about China is we think in terms of administrations and they think in terms of dynasties. Mm -hmm. Um, I take that a bit with a grain of salt also, right? In terms of internal governments, I think the Chinese um, have a long-term plan. Right, how, the, how they want to see China develop. But I think in terms of opposition to the West, uh, I think there's, there's, they're still playing around with it. Okay, because a lot of what the Chinese do, um, which appears perfectly normal to them, appears heavy-handed from the outside. Uh, and the best case here is Australia. Here you've got a country, a large part of its GNP is dependent on China's buying their raw materials, etc. And the Chinese believe that that gives them a great deal of influence in Australia. And they've used this influence partially coercively, partially through um, influence peddling. And the result is that the Australian perceptions of China are way lower than they used to be. So was this taking the long view? And I have also read, um, and taken for what that's worth, that a lot of China's foreign policy is driven by domestic policy, right? In other words, it's, I still shake my head the notion that you've now derived your entire diplomatic, um, op, entire field of diplomacy from a, from a particular movie. Wolf Warrior 2, right? But that sort of, if you think the street is going to reward um, more belligerent-sounding diplomacy, it does not speak well of your long-range view that you let the street's opinion of your diplomacy trump what you're actually trying to do with your diplomacy. You know, I've I've never known diplomacy to work better when you start insulting the people you're talking to. It's not very how you say diplomatic. No, no. <laughs> um, now, as a, a final question here, because I'm aware I'm taking up a lot of your time. Um, it, there's there's one final concept that that I've seen discussed, and I wanted to to get your sort of thoughts on it. Is that China use their influence whether that's financially mainly people argue that sort of that yeah the the chinese communist party has sort of financial ties and has backed x number of people and places like like even just like the hollywood film industry is is not bought by china but rely a lot on their money and they use that as a, a way in which they can sort of push very subtly their ideas are into the world um, and i've seen it being uh, accusations being um, sort of thrown at, at media organizations at like big tech companies pharmaceutical firms um uh, the, the example that i've seen brought up a lot recently was um john cena the wwe star uh, apologizing for apologizing in perfect mandarin for um accidentally referring to taiwan as a country uh, in a in a press conference he'd given, which was a little just I don't know. I find it a touch disturbing. Um, 
do you see that kind of influence peddling as a as a form of of psychological or information warfare and do you see it as being something that's effective or are people seeing ghosts there okay this is my opinion i'm not a china expert so here goes anyway china seems to have a bee in their bonnet about people saying bad things about china Mm. right but it's a very particular thing i don't want to control your thoughts but just don't say bad things about us and then we're okay and China seems to put a lot of its influence over that very specific thing. And I'm wondering if they're worried that if I we, if bad things are said about China, it's going to go back to the Chinese people and undermine the, the party's grip on power. Mm. Let, me, let me put See, it my sense Let me was... give you an analogy, yeah, okay. right? Let us say I was a crusading religion. And I was trying to use my muscle to have other people adopt their religion, right? Well, the religion comes with a huge corpus of uh, theology, a huge corpus of ethical teaching. And so for me to constrict what you say so that it's consistent with my religion, I would have to constrict a large percentage of everything that you say. But if all I want you to say is just don't say bad things about me, that gets to a very small percentage of things that you can say and in many ways makes it more palatable because whose identity in the West, and there are a couple of exceptions, but they are exceptions, is bound up in their, in what they say about China. You can go a whole year without saying anything about China, right? So because the China's ask is so specific, that a lot of people, and it's not just actors, it's um, it's airline companies. How do they refer to that that city in that offshore island that they fly planes to? <laughs> right? If you refer to it the wrong way, the Chinese get very unhappy. So here's mm-hmm. it. Can I actually take passengers there and refer to it the way the Chinese like? And the answer is yes. You do a little uh, shuffle and you're embarrassed and, you know, that's it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the my sense of of China's um, sort my my sense of the reasoning for their don't say anything bad about China policy was that if we were openly discussing what China do that is in our sort of Western centric pro freedom um, sort of you know civil rights etc sort of view of the world that we would be forced to be we would be forced to confront them and we wouldn't be able to continue to have them as the economic or well of the workshop of the world as such like if 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 we were to 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 openly and consistently say it was like hey you know uh we think you might be committing genocide and um you know for example with the the uyghurs um or you know, uh, you're you're kind of using slave labor to make your your phones, and you probably shouldn't have nets on the side of the Foxconn building for people to not jump off the side. Like if we were to say all of these things about China openly, and and if it was more openly discussed, it w- it was my sense that China fear confrontation on that in the same way that say uh. Hitler's Germany in the early 30s were very keen to avoid confrontation because that would have sort of that would have brought him down. Uh, a lot depends on the power relationships at any one point in time, right? And let's, mm. let's get back to Australia. The Chinese would like to use their economic leverage over Australia to make the Australians behave the way the Chinese want them to. But at mm. the same time, the Chinese don't have any really good places to get their iron ore. And you can't make steel without it. So, you know, who's got what power, what leverage can you can you do for it? How careful do you have to be? Um, if the West in unison were to do something about China on any particular issue, right? Then the then you would face a different correlation of power here, different correlation mm-hmm. of forces, and you might end up with somewhat different behavior. 
And then China would basically say, you know, we're not going to win this particular fight, so let's go to another one. But, I mean, isn't that all of human history? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, conflict, war is, is, you know, you can't really escape it if you look at the entire history of humanity and nature, basically. But we can do less of it. We can definitely do less of it. That I will not disagree with at all. Um, Sticks and but stones, yes, uh, Exactly. I mean, well, words are violence these days, but... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but Dr. Levicki, uh, thank you so much. It has been, uh, yeah, an absolute pleasure. Really, really, uh, appreciate your time. And you, you've made me, uh, look at quite a few things with a, with a very different lens. So I really appreciate, yeah, your, your expertise and your, your knowledge. Well, thanks very much. What expertise I have. You're welcome to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything you'd like to point people towards, um, the books, Twitter handles, anything of your of yourself you want to promote before we uh, before we finish? No, nothing that you haven't said said already. Okay, well, links for all your work um, I will put in the description below for anyone that wants to check it out. So, okay. uh, yeah, thanks very much. Okay, thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. Don't forget our sponsor, ExpressVPN, and my book, Brexit: The Establishment Civil War, can both be found in the links in the description below. And also, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow. Until next time, thanks for listening. Screw the hedge funds. You can make as many rules as you want, but if there's no teeth behind them, what's the point? Well, like Citadel is potentially just gone in a few months. It feels like financial institutions, that they are all laughing at us by buying GME. <laughs> Screw the hedge funds. Like, I will lose my entire investment if it brings them down. Why on earth, last May, could you buy the entire company for $200 million? What's been happening on Reddit and in social media and in the marketplace? has never been seen before. I argue that nothing is off the table. There is nothing off the table when dealing with the volumes of money in something as big as the United States uh, stock market. The hedge funds have clearly underestimated a group of a group of people raised on Friday night World of Warcraft rates. Dark pools, they are they're another uh, mechanism to manipulate and cheat. Mainstream journalists don't say these things for a number of reasons. Uh, one is their sources are the people that I'm talking about, and so they can't call somebody a crook. Super Stonk and the other communities that have emerged are a hive mind, the likes of which we have never seen before. It's madness and brilliance, insanity and genius all rolled into one. It's very possible that Citadel will be gone in a few months. And, and not just Citadel, but the entire financial system has the potential to come crashing down. These crooks continue to gamble recklessly with the world economy, and this could be the moment that they finally get their justice. <laughs>